The postponement of Premier League matches last weekend left only Europa League as a topic of discussion since the Arsenal win. As a result, today on Devils in the Details, we'll look at the Europa League a little bit, along with selected topics that we haven't yet discussed from the first month of the season. Before we get started, my usual question, Case, how are you this week? I'm pretty good, Aaron. Pretty good. You know, obviously disappointed that the the matches got postponed this weekend, and also this coming weekend they've been postponed, so no United in the league for a uh, better part of a month. But uh, other than that, can't complain. What about you? Yeah, pretty much same. I always forget how dry the Europa League group stages can be, and I honestly thought a game against Real Sociedad would be a little bit better, uh, because they are a relatively well-known team. I mean, they won the match, so it's it's hard to say anything bad about them, but just the game kind of dragged a little bit. Other than that, things have been good. Let's start maybe talking about that Sociedad game a little bit. I kind of watched the game, and, and, and we spoke about it a little bit, and you had a lot of good things to say about United's performance. Maybe let's start with some of those good things, because I think most of the talk, predictably after a loss, was a little bit negative. Yeah, so in terms of positives versus negatives, obviously anytime you lose a match, you're not happy. And this was not a good performance by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not going to sit here and tell you United were excellent and that they deserved to just roll over La La Real. However, what I will say is I don't think it was as catastrophically bad as other people suggested online. In fact, I think it was better than both the Southampton and the Leicester performances in the league that saw us win. I thought out of possession, especially in the first half, United were basically perfect. It was, obviously, La Real made a, a lot of unforced errors, especially their goalkeeper, who, as I understand it, is generally pretty good with his feet. He sort of booted the ball out of play once United forced the ball back to the goalkeeper early on, and that allowed United to establish a lot of control early, early on in the match. So yeah, I would say that was the main positive. Yeah, I kind of noticed the same thing. They they sort of forced a lot of errors from Sociedad. And and obviously, it's always a two-way conversation. In general, as observers, we tend to skew thoughts towards the team that has the ball. So what you see is a lot of Real Sociedad making mistakes in possession. And those mistakes are forced to at least some extent by the opposition. And I think United did well to especially put the goalkeeper in difficult situations where he could not easily find someone. There were a lot of plays where they kind of tried to force a chip pass to the fullback um, on either side and then press the fullback really hard. That led to loads of stray passes from the goalkeeper. A couple where the fullback would receive it for Sociedad and immediately be pressed out of play or um, into a difficult decision. Lots of high regains. Um, and this wasn't even the first choice personnel for a lot of United sides. So the force regains is a, an important thing to, to, to note because this is not something we see often from United, even in their matches where the defense plays well nominally, uh, or even these Liverpool and Arsenal matches where we didn't concede often and we objectively played good defense. It was pretty rare that either Arsenal or Liverpool were giving up possession in their own half in instances where they weren't making unforced errors. And so this was a match where United maintained their shape, pressed, forced the ball back to the goalkeeper, and then forced errors out of La Real. Whether or not they could have avoided some of those forced errors, obviously better technicians make fewer even forced errors, but I still think this was a good sign. I, I think a huge step towards United being... Champions League caliber side consistently 
um, and looking the part is out-of-possession approaches and performances like we saw in the first half. Yeah, totally agree. I guess I would just, the way I often look at it is when you're playing a game in sort of settled defense or rest defense, let's let's forget about transitions for a second. There's sort of two components of good out-of-possession play. There's preventing the opposition from being able to play through you. And there's forcing mistakes that allow you to win the ball back. And that sounds pretty obvious in general, but I think it's a good distinction to make because especially under Solskjaer and Mourinho, I think there were periods where United were very good at the first part, which is preventing the opposition from being able to create chances against them. But I don't think they were particularly good at the part of forcing the opposition into mistakes that allow you to win the ball back. And because of that, I think you got a lot of matches where where the opposition didn't make particularly sort of unforced errors. And, it, and it's hard because there's means and extents of it. But you would get a lot of dead games where United did not have enough of the ball to create anything. Uh, but neither did the opposition do anything because United defended generally well. That might be a sustainable strategy for getting draws or getting one-off results where the opposition make mistakes. Or, you know, giving yourself a good chance to be the beneficiary of luck. But games are won in either making excellent actions that force defensive mistakes and settle possession. um, Or, in the first place, having that possession or transitions from the form of forcing mistakes from the opposition when they're in possession. Um, And that's going to be a big thing for Ten Hag is being able to implement a team that perhaps wins the ball more consistently. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I've got a bunch of thoughts on what you just said. So first of all, as for Solskjaer and our ability to defend and set defense, I totally agree. There were periods where we, as a side, I think especially in 2019-2020, we would go through runs of matches where the opposition really would create very, very little. uh, But United would also create very, very little. um, And it would be these fine margins where United were drawing nil-nil or winning one-nil or drawing 1-1, and the reason was strong rest defense that placed an emphasis on just waiting until the opposition gave the ball up. And that just doesn't create uh, the same transitional opportunities, and not even fully transitional, uh, because it's more complicated than that, but uh, sort of the the vulnerable by design moments that uh, an attack, that a defense turns to attack in. Um, Another thought that you reminded me of is under Mourinho. Uh, you're absolutely right. We sat deep and we, it was a very similar approach. Even in the matches where we played in a mid block, there was sort of a, an anticipation that the opposition would make mistakes and that's how we would score and we would win games. And I think that's actually a really interesting Mourinho specific point. And this is sort of going on a tangent, but I think a big part of why Jose Mourinho is no longer regarded as a top end coach is because Top-end managers in football nowadays don't wait, don't tactically don't wait for the opposition to give them opportunities to score. They generate them out of possession and in possession. And yeah, I, I think Mourinho even has a quote to the effect of the side that makes the fewest mistakes wins the match. Whereas I would say now the side that forces the most mistakes wins the match. And I, that's an important distinction. And I think we're sort of, hopefully we're seeing that play out uh, on the pitch Yeah, I mean, I think we could go on the whole episode about this, but I think it might also be fair to talk a little bit about, you know, if the out-of-possession 
fundamentals are getting so much better, why was this game so dry, of course? And I, I don't want to go into the penalty decision because I think it's pretty clear it wasn't a penalty, and I don't think that's an interesting point of discussion. Perhaps what's interesting is maybe why United fell so flat and couldn't get a goal of their own. United created, I believe, 1.0 XG in this game. And obviously XG is not a, a perfect measure of attacking performance. And in fact, I think United created more threat, uh, especially early on in this match, than that figure represents. There were a lot of instances where United were one or two linked passes from a goal-scoring opportunity, and it just fell apart. And I, I think a lot of people focused on the fact that um, Fred was playing an attacking midfield in this match and how that had a negative effect. And you know what? That's absolutely true. Uh, Fred really struggles with his back-to-goal, and we saw it over and over again. Just sloppy touches, even when he was receiving in a lot of space. Obviously, there's complications, but I do think we also saw the other side of it. He had a really positive effect on our out-of-possession play in that position. So I wouldn't look at this match as sort of a monolithic Fred at 10 as a failure. I would look at it as Fred at 10, here are the pros and cons. I think Fred at 10 is maybe a little bit too far where he's just in that position way too influential on the side's attacking play. And that's just not his main sort of remit as a player. But I think, I, I think it, like you said, it, it, it does shed light on a lot of his strengths, which are perhaps less often recognizable. Because like I said, you always notice what players do with the ball more than what they do without the ball. And while I think playing him at 10 is probably a little bit too far, I think it sort of went to show the types of advantages you can get from him in those advanced roles. And perhaps playing in a more advanced 8 role, or alongside another 8 where... Perhaps he takes the initiative out of possession to go forward and another midfielder has a more prominent role in possession. Uh, Bruno or Ericsson probably, I think that could actually work and, and be something that you see more often in the future. So while the Fred at 10 experiment failed, I don't think it was a complete waste of time. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think in any instance where you're asking Fred to like bear a, a primary at, uh creative burden that's a problem but I would caveat it with the fact that I don't think it's fair to make a judgment on his aptitude for that position in our setup in general based on a match where he played behind Cristiano and where one of the wingers was Alonga because I think that's just a generally technically bereft front four even with Antony as the right winger and I think if you saw him, Fred, maybe start the match with Sancho and Martial in front of him, it might have been a different story. Uh, you could have had, I'm, I'm not going to get into hypotheticals, but I think it would have been much less glaring. And I think you might have seen the side play really good football. Uh, and, and so that all feeds into why didn't United score in this match? Why were they seemingly so flat and not even creating threat, especially after the goal was conceded? Um, the attacking options are nasty. Like, like, even with Anthony coming in, when United aren't fielding their first-choice front three, I am not confident in creating goal-scoring opportunities. We'll talk about United's struggles in attack in a little bit, but first, I wanted to cover the new format of the Europa League a little bit. The new format of the competition um, is that if United finish second in this group, 
they actually have to play a playoff against a third place Champions League team from the group stages to make it into the knockout stages. So it's no longer a top two kind of situation. And that puts a fair bit of pressure on United to be pretty much perfect now. They have to beat Sheriff both times. They have to beat Omonia both times because we're assuming that Sociedad is likely to do that as well. And then they have to beat Sociedad in order to avoid a playoff or they have to beat potentially a very strong third place Champions League team. I did a bit of digging and most of the teams that United could draw from playing a third place Champions League group team are quite good. Proper Champions League level teams. With that said, do you still expect a lot of rotation in the next few Europa League matches? Yeah, I do. Maybe a little bit less than we previously would have expected, but if this can't if this if the second choice players in the side can't roll ammonia, I think that's a problem. Like I think that speaks to something else going on, um, whether it be like a massive talent deficit at the, the second level of the squad, or I don't know, maybe maybe issues with uh, our ability to adopt a new system. If United's depth players cannot get United through in the Europa League, next season in the Champions League won't be fun. Um, you need a squad, and I think we're in this for the long haul. This isn't where we're expecting United to sort of play all the cards and, and throw the hand. So I feel like what that means is you play the squad the way you play the squad, even including players who are not good enough. And that one gives you an idea of where the squad actually is and how to improve it better than not doing that. Like I think with Solskjaer, what we began to see is as he declined the opportunities to rotate, you ended up with a lot of good squad players who did not have properly defined roles in the side and as a result the squad looked thinner than it was and you also had a lot of squad players who were not playing as well as they probably could have because they weren't fresh and they they weren't they didn't have clarity of role so with all of that said i think the decision here at least for me would still be to just play the squad the way you're gonna play it and see where they come out at the end of it and if we don't like what we end up seeing in terms of results in the Europa League, maybe that's a sign that the squad needs to be improved as opposed to trying to play the first team and going, oh, we did well in the Europa League because in a year's time, we're going to end up seeing the same issues again. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But I think I think we sort of knew this was a problem. And, and you know, it's a different story if we can't beat Sheriff and Ammonia. I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I expect the second team that we have currently to not be able to beat those teams, but not being able to beat La Real with a rotated side, I can't say I'm, I'm that surprised by. I think if you look at the front six of the, you know, four, two, three, one formation that we've been using, I think we probably have seven players that I think long-term belong in the squad, which isn't enough. Well, yeah, I, I do think, some of the players who theoretically come into a second choice side. Um, I don't necessarily think all of these players are, are the second choice, in fact, but right now you're thinking... True, true. You know, I, Casemiro, yeah. Casemiro, you know, Luke Shaw in theory. Malasia played, but Luke Shaw, I think you could make a case for Maguire. I think you could you could probably make a case that, you know, Fred could start. I, I don't necessarily think so, but... All right, I think that's it for the Europa League. 
We're going to take a quick break and a little bit of a surprise for you for the second half. We've got a little bit of like an overview of the season, perhaps some like topics we haven't really touched upon so far. And best of all, Case is going to be hosting it. Stay tuned for that. Okay, uh, welcome back, everybody. That's it for our coverage of the Europa League for this episode. So now we're going to do a season's review. We've already covered a lot, obviously, in our previous episodes. Uh, so let's, we're going to do something a little different. Um, we're going to talk about uh, positives that surprise us this season versus positives that, or negatives that surprise us this season. So let's do one of each. Uh, Aaron, you want to start with the positive? Yeah, sure. So the positive surprise of the season that I'm going to start with is the actual results so far. I was really disappointed to see United lose both of their first two games against teams that I think they're tactically strong. And I mean, Brighton right now are in a really interesting situation, but I think they they were tactically strong at the time that they came up against United, but not teams that should be expected to compete against or beat United uh, at this level. Um, and they were both, in my opinion, better than United in those games. So I was quite disappointed to see that. But looking at it from sort of the six games, or even if you want to include the Europa League, the seven games, four wins and three losses, two points per game in the Premier League would be a very, very good place to be looking back at this season. As we discussed in the last, uh, after the Arsenal game, I don't think United's performances have warranted four out of four wins uh, based on how much they've created and conceded and and the overall flow of the games. Uh, but I don't think that any of the particular matches were ones where I would say United should not have won the game. I look at it from the perspective of, and, and again, we talked about this last week, being able to outcreate the opposition by such a margin that the variability of the outcomes that occur from that match are limited, right? Where, for example, Man City, they concede so little and they create so much that the probability, like, they play better than the opposition, consistently but the probability of the opposition winning from what they have in that match is so low and that's what the best teams in the world are doing at this point they're not only outplaying every opposition they face and dominating them they're actually restricting the extent to which the opposition can gain a foothold in these matches and create outcomes that would be unlucky for them and united have not done that right so i think when you look back at these games and if you play at this level going forward you're not likely to end with that sort of two points a game figure, which I think would see United probably in fourth or even third. 76 points would be a brilliant total for this season. It would be a fantastic season, top four or not, right? Like, for context, the best season under Solskjaer was 74. Um, and there was a lot of overperformance in that season from in terms of finishing compared to chances. And the best under Mourinho was 81. Even more overperformance. Which was a ton of overperformance yeah, again. Um, yeah. If, if we... If we but again, if we finish on 76 points playing how we have, there will be a lot of overperformance. So Yeah, and and on but on top of that, those seasons, I would say the le- overall level of teams in the league was much lower. In the Mourinho season, there were like five or six teams United could just rely on beating. And and to some extent the same in the Solskjaer season. Um in the Solskjaer season it was less so that, but more so that the top six teams were worse. A lot of them had transition years, a lot of them had like injury ridden years. But anyway, long story short is I think the results have been good, and I don't think they've been completely undeserved. And I also think that there is a lot of room for improvement with the current squad and the current performances, which means that even if United are slightly overperforming on results at this point, I think we have a promising outlook for how the rest of the season could go. 
And on top of that, we've played a good basket of teams. Like, we've played teams at the bottom of the league, I want to say. We've played teams that are sort of like mid-table, strong tactically, and we've played top teams. And all of them have all of them have been covered so far. So that means that it's a pretty good basket of teams for what you'd maybe expect across the season. I don't think there's like a major outlier that we're missing, even though, of course, greater sample will help us learn more about this team. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, I certainly think if you replay, especially the Southampton and Leicester matches, you would expect to draw at least one of those. I think that it's funny because the Liverpool and Arsenal matches, we obviously conceded more opportunities, but we also created way more, especially big, like created big chances. And that's how you put away matches. I think we're going to be good at putting away matches this season when we do go up early because we look so threatening in behind when teams overcommit. And that's, that's obviously a good thing. So maybe we can, we'll see that trend continue, but then these sort of gross down in the mud with teams we should be dominating matches, I expect us to drop points going forward. I agree. And also, for what it's worth, I'm pretty sure on FBref, which is the most reliable, and again, single game XG used with a lot of caution. United actually created better chances than both Liverpool and Arsenal in terms of the shot numbers. And that's despite leading for large stretches of the match, which gives them more incentive to attack. Um, perhaps more incentive to give away opportunities in transition, still. I think that's a good sign and something we could not have imagined a year ago, even if Liverpool weren't at their best in that game. Yeah, so I'll say for my positive, yeah. the positive surprise for me has been the back line as a whole looks genuinely good. Like I have true faith in these four players to put out fires. And obviously what goes on in front of them matters as much, if not more, uh, than how the four of them perform. But the situations that they have been confronted with, I've been really impressed with how they've handled. That is a huge bonus. That's a huge plus. I can't remember the last time United had four players natural to their positions in the back line playing at a high level as a unit. Maybe maybe we can illuminate something interesting. Uh, what, what's your big surprise negative from this season, Aaron? Okay, I'll, go, I'll give an honorable mention to going long from goal kicks that would be my number one because i think it's just stubbornness with solving the goalkeeping problem but i don't think we need to cover it again i think we've covered it at least twice if not three times so far in the running like the podcast and i'm sure we'll cover it again <laughs> and it's going to come up all season because you were talking about how you know you have these 50 50 games with with sort of lower end teams and i think that's a huge reason why that's going to continue to be the case throughout the season negative other than that so far is i'm gonna go with the attacking situation i don't see the attacking firepower in this team to to maintain a consistent challenge at the top of the table on an individual level i don't even mean on a team level i think anthony is a good signing from a balanced perspective in the way that he complements sancho's weaknesses on the ball i think the fact that he's quick and good 1v1 is complimentary to Sancho. I think the fact that he can hang high and wide on the right side allows Sancho to come inside on the left with good fullback dynamics. Um, you'll see Malasia and Shaw overlapping or, or Dalo inverting. And that all works really well. The problem is, I don't think Sancho and Antony, without a particular kind of striker, are able to generate the output necessary for United to mount a challenge 
for the Premier League title. That's a problem when you've spent $150 million plus on them. I don't think it's a problem that can't be solved with another addition, but I've been pretty disappointed, I would say, overall with the options within the squad right now. I, ha- I gave this a lot of thought because I think there are, there are a couple of surprise negatives this season uh, that you could go with. But I would say the lack of attacking output output from left back. I think generally I expected Malasia to be a more defensively sound or at least active option than Shaw. But I didn't expect Shaw to play so small a role. And I understand that he's been injured, but even still, I expected him to sort of honestly play a really big role in the threat we would be able to create in the final third, especially with Sancho now moving to the left wing. And then also, I think Malassi is actually a very good attacking fullback based on what he demonstrated in uh, the Dutch Domestic League and in uh, the Conference League last season. I think he has a lot more to offer going forward than we've seen. And so I've sort of been, I don't want to say disappointed because I understand why it's been done tactically, but I'm concerned at how little he's been able to get to the byline um, both from a role perspective and at how infrequently the left wingers and the uh, the attacking midfielders that we've used have released him to the byline to create. Because I think that could be a huge threat for us, especially in those Leicester Southampton type matches. And we haven't seen it. And obviously, I think he's been a good performer. I think I've made that clear already. But there's we need more from his game if he's going to be the first choice left back. And I think he has the capacity to do it. And it's just not been something that's either been tactically possible for him or possible for him from a a supply standpoint nobody's been giving him the ball in those situations yeah it would be more better it would be beneficial to see more from him in the final third just because like you said i think that's his main sort of at least my understanding is that that was his main selling point as a player and i also think that sancho kind of needs that to really reach those higher gears um, as long as you're isolating Sancho with fullbacks, you're just not getting what he's best at. And I think that I don't think that means he's not an exceptional player. I think he's absolutely brilliant. Um, I think we've seen evidence that he can totally run this team from an attacking perspective. And I think he can run the team better than Bruno was two years ago. And I think that's great. But in order to get the best out of him, you need to consistently give him the release option. And having Molossi at his best is, is a big part of that. As for Shaw, I'm just hoping that he and Maguire, like, honestly, my biggest takeaway is they don't look, and maybe this is just me, but they just don't look as fit as they did when they were playing at their best, and they're going to need to fix that. And I'm hoping that maybe this time out of the spotlight gives them that chance to really get back into shape a little bit. It might also be a confidence thing, so rediscover their confidence with, with perhaps more athletic players at this exact moment taking their place. Yeah, I agree. I think we're reaching a tipping point with both of them where if they don't take this opportunity away from consistent first-team league football to sort of sort their fitness, maybe get a bit of a confidence reset, uh, you just have to start asking questions about uh, whether they're first-teamers long-term. It's also hard to tell sort of the long-term physical impacts of the injuries they've had and played through. Yeah, I sort of had that built into what I was saying you could make the argument, or maybe it is the reality that their injuries have changed who they are as players, um, and that they're never going to hit those levels again. And um, we have to consider that possibility, as sad as it would be. 
Uh, I, I think they're probably not the most beloved players uh, at the club, but they've both been here a long time. They both put in good performances. I, I don't think anybody should be celebrating their demise. And I feel like I see that sometimes, but I do think Shaw and Maguire playing the way they played in 2020 and 2021 in this current team would totally elevate the side. I totally agree. I think in particular Shaw. Okay. Uh, so let's move on to sort of a different segment. Aaron, who's your player of the season so far? Um, and if, if that's too difficult to question to narrow down, I'll let you give a top three. Yeah, me being uh, the initiative taker I am, I, I made a top three. Uh, and I'll start with three and count my way up because I'm also dramatic. So uh, at three, I've gone with Diogo Dallo. So earlier I was actually going to say Dallo's performances have been the positive surprise of the season. But I decided not to, one, because I wanted to include him in this list. And two, because I'm not surprised. I think I've, for the last year, consistently advocated that Dallo offers a lot with the ball at his feet. Uh, especially in build-up, that makes him a huge asset to this team and that he's the best right-back in the squad by far. He was posting good possession numbers last season in a team that was in complete disarray. Um, so in a more settled team, he's just sort of started to pick out really nice positions in build-up and make these very, very good progressive passing actions. And he's also beginning to find his feet in the final third a little bit, which I was honestly a little bit doubtful, even being the Dalo optimist that I am, that he would be able to do. Um, some of his crossing has been better, some of his, in, like, having the freedom to play inverted, I think playing with Anthony will totally help him. I think against Brentford, we pointed out that Dalo maybe was having a little bit of trouble, and especially with that right-side dynamic, with reading some of the build-up movements, and we thought that that would come together over time. And I think we're already seeing the signs of Dalo being really very much able to play this role. United have signed two massive sort of ball-playing presences from deep, but alongside them, I think Dalo has been one of the biggest keys to United being able to less play out of the back from goal kicks because they've been going long. But when the ball is at the feet of the defense, quickly begin to break lines and find space uh, in the middle of the park. I, I agree. I, I think Dalo would have been a good pick as a, a positive surprise, except I don't think it's that surprising. Uh, I think we can see this in preseason that he had, he fit this role that, uh, that was going to be asked of him. And there were growing pains, and I think they're going to continue to be growing pains. I think he actually made arguably a pretty big mistake in the Arsenal match that went unpunished because Erickson was fouled in, in the buildup. But Martinelli got behind him for what would have been Arsenal's opener. And that was a mistake within the confines of his execution of, the ta- of his tactical role in this new system. Uh, and, and that won't go away, but there's been huge growth, and I think there's a lot of reason to be excited about him. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a good that's a good start to your list. I'm I'm interested to see who you have this two and one because I think I would have had them higher. Really? Okay. Well, at number two, I think this is the one you'll disagree with. Um, I've got Erickson. I have been vocally very very annoyed about United's central midfield situation for years, and I thought that Erickson coming in as the only player this summer was something I was very skeptical about. And I, I still believe it's the wrong decision for what it's worth. But essentially what's happened is United have gone and signed a player who historically is a very attacking player. He's had a very difficult last two years from a fitness standpoint. That's one he way to put it. <laughs> is, yeah, exactly. He is, um, he's 30 and they've gone, okay, you're going to be playing the chief role of getting the ball out of our half. And 
not only has he taken it on, I honestly think he's been great, especially in recent matches. Um, we talked about a little bit about his stamina and how he can't perhaps do it for 90 minutes, but what he has been giving, especially in that Arsenal match, is just complete reinvention of this midfield from what they can do on the ball. His technical finesse from playing further up the pitch, I, 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 I tweeted something like this where it's like, playing in this deeper role feels like almost like Ericsson doing like a victory lap of his career where he's like he's playing out like these are going to be the years of his career because it's united that are the most watched they're going to be the years that when people look back at erickson a lot of them are going to think of the years he played for united and he's playing in a slightly different role but one where you can see that he has this technical absolute brilliance in his prime and also has the sort of aptitude to adapt to play in a different situation really get involved in the flow of how the team plays as a whole. And I also think he's sort of changed a little bit of his passing habits to play in this role. He he still loves to play those risky long balls, uh, but he's very calculated in when he chooses to do it. And he's able to also play simple line-breaking passes, ones that start long moves. He's able to basically play a full range of passes on the ball. He's been receiving in build-up, and he obviously had that difficult moment against Brentford where perhaps a more typical deep-lying midfielder would have been able to get out of that situation, but it was a bad situation, and overall, I just think that United look like a completely different team to past few seasons with Ericsson in midfield. Yeah, I totally agree with with the reliance part, and if you ask me, of all the summer signings, who was the most important, uh, who changed the makeup of this squad the most, I'd probably tell you Ericsson, which is a weird thing, because I definitely wouldn't have thought that when we signed him. However, I think for me, I have him below Dallow just because I think Dallow's been more consistently good, whereas I think Erickson's highs have been so, so high. Like I think somebody put a video up on, on Twitter of all the line-breaking passes that were played against Arsenal, and I thought Erickson would have a bunch of them, but it actually wound up being that he only played two of the, two of the I think, 12 or 13 or 14, but they were... The decisive ones, they were these splitting passes, one for the second, first goal, one for the second goal, and then I don't think they counted it as a line-breaking pass, but he also played the ball for the third goal. So it's not like, he hasn't been doing this progressive this progressive role in volume. I think that's actually fallen to a different player who we haven't discussed yet, who I have a feeling will be your number one. I think he is mine as well. But he's been sort of the person playing those killer balls that we're all going to remember and, and for good reason, because they they're massively impactful that have sort of created these goal scoring moves. But overall, I think in the matches, because it's been sort of a high highs, low lows, the matches where he hasn't been able to have that decisive effect, he's been had sort of middling performances. And I think that's under uh, sort of underlined in his, uh, in that Brentford match where I, I was, I was, you know, sort of begging for him to get that deep midfield role and then obviously uh, it didn't go that well. And then again, even for the, the the goal that we conceded against Liverpool, I think you could argue he was probably most at fault. And that's just because physically he has limitations. But overall, that I don't mean to come off sounding negative on Ericsson. He's been massive for us and I love him so much. I love watching him play. It's so refreshing. <laughs> yeah, he's all, he's been one of my favorite players throughout his career. And I just think that the fact that this has gone so well for him is a total testament to the player he is because it, it is completely different to what he did at, at, at the peak of his powers. Okay, before I say number one, who I think is going to be really predictable, um, 
I did want to give a few honorable mentions because there have been some other good performances. And last season, a top three would have been absolutely impossible. So hopefully more of this. Um, Malassia and Varane have come into the team really well. Varane has quietly put in a number of very, very good and crucial defensive performances. Um, and I think he's been almost flawless defensively. I think yeah, you and say. you can kind of make the... Like, he's been so good that it doesn't even particularly matter so far that he hasn't been that good on the ball. Uh, because defensively, he's just totally changed the team. Yeah. Sancho, I think we'll see more of him as the season goes on. Like I said, there's a few factors that are limiting his sort of highest end impact. But I think, like, two goals, and I don't think he has any assists, but two goals is a good return for Sancho um, in, in sort of the opening stages of the season after he struggled last year. Rashford's highs have been probably higher than anyone else. Like, just he's absolutely grilling teams when uh, when when he's at his best, and that's like that's what you've come to expect. But yeah, and I also think that Bruno struggled a lot at the start, but I do think he's getting better. Um, and I, that was one thing I was really concerned about with Bruno's contract, where like I think I was worried that Bruno would not be able to adapt to the out of possession and decision making demands of a possession of a possession team. And there's still a long way to go, but I do think his recent performances have been much better than the start of the season, and especially last season. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Bruno has benefited massively from Erickson coming into his own in a deeper role. So allowing Bruno to stay a little bit higher, be in that half space, and uh, do what he's best at, which is take risk, um, receive between the lines. And yeah, I think we sort of always knew that was going to happen if we got a fully functioning midfield. Not that I think we're there yet. Yeah. Turns out environments had a big impact on Bruno's performance. I think he's not the only player in the side who will come to that conclusion about. Absolutely. All right, number one. Um, I said that there were three players who drive the deep passing movements of United so far this season. And two of them were third and second, so the third one is naturally first. Um, Lissandro. <laughs> just, I don't even know what to say. Like, I honestly just, I'm in disbelief at like how good he is i knew he was good from watching him at ajax when i got to watch him but i think it's pretty obvious on first watch how good he is on the ball like his ability to make forward passes is so good he he's like one of those midfielders where they make so many forward passes a game that i don't think people even fully you go numb to it yeah people don't internalize how good they are because it's like a split second thing where space opens and the pass is just played it's done it's at the foot of the player the line is broken those types of passes shred presses even in bad systems and in good systems they are created constantly and throughout games it completely changes how united play from the back i thought and that's after he replaced someone who was good on the ball he's still completely transformed it yeah, I, I mean, I think his passing ability is pretty obvious. But what I have been even more impressed by is his defensive ability and how strong it is overall. I don't want to discuss in the air too much, but he hasn't been found out in the air yet. I suspect he will at some point be found out in the air. But that is something I could say about literally any center back to ever play the game. So I don't see it as a big thing. I'm not suggesting that he's like, you know, Virgil van Dijk levels in the air. But he, I don't think it's as much of a weakness as could ever be suggested if a weakness at all and the rest of his defensive game is stellar the biggest pitfall that aggressive defenders fall into is overcommitment. and not only is it's one of those things where it's like the more aggressive you are the more prone you are to overcommitment in defensive situations 
And not only is he, I think, the most aggressive defender United have had in a while, he is also one of the best decision makers United have had at the back. Uh, very, very rarely does he commit into a, into a situation that is aggressive and and do it wrongfully, get rolled, fail to win the ball, end up committing a foul and getting a yellow. Sometimes he does that, but that's like sort of on the smaller scale of errors that are made. It's rarely with his feet, though. When he does foul, when he does have what appears to be a rash foul, it's usually shoulder to shoulder, and he just puts a little bit more force into it than is probably prudent, but... Yeah, I think he's just a. I'm gonna use a, a phrase that I absolutely hate. I think he's just a Rolls Royce of a center back. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't use Rolls Royce. I I associate Rolls Royce with like calm defenders. I think he's more one of those like just absolutely flying everywhere true. kind of defenders. True, that's um, true. His blocking game is like ridiculous. Like every time a shot is blocked, it feels like it's him, despite constantly looking in front of him to when he can get on get the team on the front foot by winning the ball. He is also constantly defending balls that go in behind. Such a huge plus point, both on and off the ball. It's also just it's also just fun to see a defender scream every time they roll through a, an attacker or clear a ball or make a block. Like I'm 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 not much of like a mentality monster viewer of the game. Like I'm, I'm that's not something I get into very often. But it's just fun to see how much he cares. Uh, I think that's that's definitely been an underrated aspect of the season. Yeah, if he keeps playing at the level he's at, and I suspect he could even improve further because, you know, it's his first few matches from the Eredivisie, and he's 24. Yeah, he hasn't been flawless. He hasn't been flawless by any... uh, But I honestly think, like, you could be looking at one of the best center backs in Europe by, like, and not, not, like, barely, like, clearly one of the best center backs in Europe. Not only for the fact that defensively he's almost as good as I'd say as good as pretty much every United defender I've seen um, in the last 10 years. Not only that, his ability on the ball is actually off the charts good. Like he, he's, other than Daly Blind, who is absolutely beyond all odds ridiculous, he is one of the best defenders I've seen on the ball. Definitely the best I've seen for United uh, in terms of center backs on the ball. Maybe ever. Like, I'm totally excited to see where it goes and honestly just ridiculous football he he, i i said when he played his first game like pogba was my favorite united player and he wore six and he might have just like passed it on to my new favorite united player i agree yeah yeah i think if i get a kit this season it will be a lisandro martinez kit with that uh we've wrapped up episode six of devils in the details uh thanks for joining us guys thanks for joining me case your new interim host Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, obviously, no Premier League football is a disappointment for all. I think we've managed to fill, fill the space with something interesting and, and worth listening to. So I hope you guys enjoyed.